0: We're going to be talking today on God's timeless plan for His church. The verses that we're going to use today reveal God's plan through Paul for the church of the first century, but it's still His plan for today. The Bible tells us that God's nature is yesterday, today, and forever, and He does not change. So we're going to be looking at some verses in Romans, Romans 15, 14 through 19, and uh, this is a letter that Paul in Rome, or excuse me, it Paul wrote to the church in Rome from Corinth. Probably it was at the beginning of his third missionary journey, about A.D. 57, and today we've got more sermon than we've got time. Because We want to be uh, not too long with the message because we have our annual meeting coming up I was sharing with a couple of our men before that I remember Jeff Orge used to always say there's no such thing as a bad short sermon And I think that's true, but I've added to that. There's nothing worse than a long bad sermon Some of you have set through those, right? I can I can see it on your face right now So hopefully we won't be too long today, but I'm gonna boogie. We're gonna travel pretty fast So, first of all, we're looking at God's plan for His people. Uh, Because of time, I'm not going to read the whole text, but just read verses as we go through it. So, Romans 15, verse 14, Paul said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct others. God's plan for His people Three parts we'll look at today. First of all, that his people be full of goodness. What does it mean to be full of goodness? Well, it doesn't mean that we're to be as Christians goody two-shoes or holier-than-thou kind of people. Of course not. That would be self-righteousness, which the Bible tells us our self-righteousness is like filthy rags. Instead, it means to be filled with God's goodness through the power of His Holy Spirit at work in us. Goodness is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, we cannot produce goodness in and of ourselves. I know there is a common theme in our culture today that deep down we all have goodness. Actually, the Bible teaches just the opposite. Deep down we're depraved sinners. But goodness can be something God produces in the heart and the life of the believer. We can only submit our wills to God to be filled with the fruit that He produces in us through the Holy Spirit. Second part of God's plan from this passage is that His people be filled with knowledge. How do we obtain spiritual knowledge? Well, by reading, studying, meditating on, and memorizing God's Word. We cannot know how to behave in the way that pleases God if we don't seek to know from His Word what He has instructed us to do or not to do. Uh, Many people uh, live the gospel according to them, and they have, and maybe you've been one of these people, or maybe you are, that sort of decides what you are to do or not do based on your own view. But as Christ followers, we want to base our view of what we're to do and not do based on God's word. But spiritual knowledge goes far beyond just do's and don'ts of religion. It seeks to know the one who loves us and wants the best for us. Out of our love relationship with the Lord will flow knowledge of how to please Him. The third part of God's plan is that His people be able to instruct one another. Being involved in discipling others is a natural outflow of a life that is full of goodness and knowledge. We cannot be fully devoted followers of Christ if we are not involved in seeking to help others know Christ and follow Christ. When one of my grandsons was having his 11th birthday, he's 13 now, his mom always does great things with birthdays and they always have a theme for the birthday. And so she was asking Levi, 11 at the time, What did he want to be the theme of his birthday party? And this is what he said. He said, Mom, I want it to be a God party. I want it to be a God party. I think we'd do well to be as wise as that little 13-year-old, or rather 11-year-old Christ follower was that day. And they did have a God party. And the gospel was shared in that party per the desire of Levi. Christianity means living in community to... according to Hebrews, to stir up one another to love and good works. So don't think of church as just a place to be encouraged. Think of your coming together with God's people as a church to encourage others. I've found over the years that most of us look at our church from the standpoint of what can it do for me? We even say that about the service sometimes. We go, oh boy, the worship was so great. I enjoyed that. It really encouraged me. The sermon was good. It encouraged me. But as we come together, we're to be looking to how we can instruct others, encourage others, and help others. Let me ask you a question today What is your ministry, and who are you encouraging? What is your ministry, and who are you encouraging? The second main point of our sermon today is God's purpose for ministry, and we find that in verses 15 through 18. Remember as we think about this that every Christian is a minister. I thought about asking you today, okay, to raise your hand and tell us how many ministers we have in our church thinking that probably you would list the pastors and elders. But you're too smart for that. You're too well-informed already for that. You know that every Christian is to be a minister. So how do we do that? We minister to others because of God's grace in our lives. Verse 15 in this passage But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. We minister to others because of God's grace in our lives. In and of ourselves, we can't minister to other people. We are all dependent upon the grace of God, His grace first to save us, second to help us live the Christian life, and third, to minister to others. We do all those things by grace. I've found over the years as a Christian minister that many times we're quick to say, oh, I'm saved by grace, yes. But by our actions, we act like we think we can live the Christian life by our own power. We cannot. Nor can we minister to others by our own power. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. All true ministry flows from God's grace. John 15, 3 says, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Second way we, we minister is we do it to others as priests of the gospel. Let me give you a definition of what it means to be a priest. It's someone who brings or is bringing God's message to people and representing people to God. It has an up and a down flow to it. We are all to be ministers or priests of the gospel because we are all to be bringing God's message to people and to be presenting people to God. I want to tell you a story about one of our men here. Uh, Keith Sanford, a few weeks ago, was a returning guest that had been at our service to Longview. It was the Sunday that we had the commissioning for Mark and Christy, and as you'll remember, we had Jimmy John's sandwiches, and we have some left over. So Joyce told Keith, why don't you take these and give these to the homeless camps that you minister to where you work in Port- Portland. So. Keith is returning from Longview, having taken people back to Longview after the service. And as he's driving back, he told me and Joyce that he is about to come up on a rest stop, and he just felt God telling him, pull in the rest stop. And he did it without knowing why. And as he pulled in the rest stop, he felt like God was telling him, why don't you give these sandwiches to somebody here? So he found this couple there and he gave them the sandwiches and they said, well, this is very timely because we've got some other homeless friends that are about to meet us here. And so I love that because that day Keith was not giving a cup of cold water in Jesus name. He was giving cold sandwiches in Jesus name. But I tell you about Keith, not to embarrass him, but to tell you that Keith was being a priest that day. You see, he was trying to bring God's love and actions to people in order that they might be pointed toward God. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What a glorious privilege we have to be priests to others by bringing God to them through the gospel message And by praying for them and bringing them to God through their faith in Jesus, you are a royal priesthood. Now, I'm aware that in Protestantism, we have made this big distinction between clergy and laity. But I submit to you that that really has more to do with Catholic roots than it does with the Bible. Because the Bible teaches that we're a royal priesthood. We're all priests. So if you didn't have that view, I hope you will. In fact, I'm going to read that statement I just did again. uh, again. Because if you don't catch anything else today, it's important you catch this. We have a glorious privilege to be priests to others by bringing God to them through the gospel message and praying for them and bringing them to God through their faith in Jesus. We are a royal priesthood. Third, our ministry. All pride in our ministry must rest in Christ. I'm reading verse 17 and 18 now of Romans 15. In Jesus Christ, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. All pride in our ministry has to rest in Christ. There are two kinds of pride. The first is a sinful pride. Human pride is an ugly thing in the sight of God. Elsewhere, Paul says, let no one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or excuse me, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Also, he says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ Jesus. Galatians 6.14, boasting in self is sinful. And self-pride or arrogance is a disgrace to God, the Bible teaches. But contrary to that, pride that is in Christ Jesus is God-exalting. It is built on the truth that God graciously works through his people so that when any person ministries prosper, it is God who has done it through his spirit. We should aim to do all in our ministry in such a way that Christ gets the glory. Boasting in Jesus Christ says the following. It says, Christ has worked in such a way for me and in me and through me, that my work has become his work, and my boast is a boast in him. I want to say that again. Christ has worked in such a way for me, and in me, and through me, that my work has become his work, and my boast is a boast in him. That should be the goal of our life, and the goal of our ministry. Third major point today for us is we want to think about God's method of ministering the gospel. And this is brought out in the latter part of verse 18 and 19. What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. So what is God's method of ministering the gospel? First of all, God's method is to share his word, and that is his message, the gospel. God's message method is to share his word. You see, the church of Jesus Christ has nothing to offer people but the gospel, We must do what no other organization can do. I remember uh, a wonderful seminary prof years ago when I was in seminary who said, as leaders of God's church, he said, don't try to duplicate what the world does. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have ministries that meets people's needs, but only the church of Jesus Christ is sharing the gospel. So we need to make sure that we're doing what no organization can do or is doing and that is that we are sharing his word. Note the emphasis in the verses we just read and one beyond that even on the gospel in this passage. 19 Paul says, "I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ." Verse 20, "I make it my ambition to preach ambition to preach the gospel" And then in 21, we are not using that one today so much, but it said those who have never been told of him will see him, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul was saying it's his desire to preach the gospel where it's not been preached. And there is a sense in which when we share the gospel with people that maybe have never really understood it, we are sharing it where it's not yet been preached. And all this is God's emphasis The reason in this passage that the term word or the gospel gets such strong emphasis is because faith, Romans says, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or through the word of God. One of my favorite verses is Romans 116, where the apostle Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Greek. You see, I don't understand it, and neither do you, but the gospel message is power. People will not be persuaded or influenced by our mere words, but when we share about the death, burial, and resurrection, which 1 Corinthians defines as the gospel, when we share about that, there's power in that message. And the gospel convicts people of their sin. And the gospel God uses to draw people of their sin. From their sin, rather. The Word of God produces faith and salvation. The message of the gospel is life and hope, and that changes lives. It's changed mine. I hope it's changed yours. I remember the first Thanksgiving after my son had gone off to college at WSU in Pullman. Go Cougars. Um, I don't know where that came from. He returned for Thanksgiving, and we always, around our Thanksgiving table, have an opportunity for everybody to share something they're thankful for. Well, Mom and Dad were not prepared for what Jacob was going to share that day because he said, I'm thankful for the way I have seen God change, change lives. He said, I see kids doing stupid things at college. But he said, I realize that Christ changes lives. And, of course, Mom and Dad are sitting there crying in our turkey, But uh, he, he, he got it. He got it. So, words can only do so much because they need to be backed up by the second part of the method. And that is Paul's method also involved deeds, or we can say actions, involved work. Paul both spoke and he acted. It's interesting, these things going together, what we say and what we do, is very, very important. You see, deeds in the Christian life have a supporting role. They are not the direct means of saving people the way that the word or the gospel is. But deeds, though they cannot tell the story of the death and the resurrection of Christ and its saving meaning, only words can. So the deeds have value as they confirm the word, the gospel the way we live. Ephesians 2.10 brings this out, and I want to read that to you. Uh, we often quote Ephesians 2.8 and 9, For by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any men should boast. We leave out verse 10, and that's tragic because it ties the two together. It ties together the gospel message and our being saved by grace through faith with works. For you follow those two great verses I just quoted with verse 10, and it says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our deeds are important. They confirm our message. That's the way Luke explained it in the relationship about word and deed in Acts 14.3. There Paul and Barnabas are a biblical illustration of this. When they were in Iconium, it says this about it. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly, that's the word, the gospel, for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders and value of the word. This leads us to the third part of god's method and that is god's method includes miracles signs and wonders verse 19 what god has accomplished through me to bring the gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders by the power of the spirit of god So from Jerusalem and all the way around to Alicorium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. We have here miracles mentioned. I want to remind you of something. We serve a supernatural God and we have a supernatural faith and a supernatural uh, religion, as it were. I know We're all more about in Christianity relationship, but we are considered by the world a religion. And it's important to realize that we are all about miracles. Are any of these things supernatural? Our Savior came born from a woman who was a virgin, and he was God incarnate, a little baby. Pretty miraculous stuff, isn't it? And then his resurrection, what could be more supernatural then that one would come back from the dead, God incarnate, to declare his victory over sin and over death. I was reading in my quiet time this past week in Matthew 11. And there Jesus says to the Pharisees that he says, do you want a sign? Okay, I'll give you a sign. You know what he says next? He proceeds to tell them about he's going to be resurrected from the dead. A miracle. And then, what's another miracle? We actually believe as Christians that the words in this book are God-breathed and inspired. That's a miracle. Why do you think so many people discount it? Because they don't believe in miracles. Because they don't know the miracle working God. And they haven't accepted the resurrection. And they acknowledge Christmas is the time we remember Jesus. But do they really believe that he came born of a virgin? And was God incarnate? Most don't. We believe in miracles. Many evidences of this throughout the books of Act, the book of Acts we find. A couple of them are found in Acts 16, which is a biblical record of a church plant in Philippi. And in this passage, I preached here on that passage uh, about a year ago or so, or maybe it was longer than that. But in that passage, we have a demonized girl who has the demon cast out of her. Paul and Silas end up in jail But they were released by a miraculous earthquake, and the result was salvation of the Philippian jailer. You see, the miracle of Paul and Silas being freed was merely to give focus to the gospel and to the word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, they said to the Philippian jailer, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them and all who were in the house. You see, it was the Word of God that saved, but it was the miracle that confirmed it. I've become aware, as maybe some of you have, that uh, in recent years, there's been an amazing amount of Muslim believers that have seen Christ come to them in a vision. And they have subsequently given their life to Christ I have read recently about some of these very things happening since the Israeli Hamas war started Muslims saying I had a dream and I saw Jesus what does that mean God's still in the miracle working business what about today should we expect the same miraculous confirmation uh, of our witness today That happened in the first century? Well, I would answer that two ways. Bear with me now. This is going to get a little complex here. Uh, I would say yes, but not fully. Let me explain. The answer is yes. We should still expect a miracle today to confirm the message of the gospel. But not to the same measure that the apostles experienced this miraculous power. The reason I say yes is that I don't see any compelling reason in Scripture that declares a moratorium on miracles. But I do see a list of miraculous gifts of the church that are in 1 Corinthians 12. So I think God intends to bless His Word and His people with miracles today. What's a miracle? I'll give you a definition of it. It's an extraordinary work of divine power that goes beyond the laws of nature. We still have miracles today. But I would say probably not to our miracles being used today as the same way they were in the first century. I'd say probably not for the same measure, at least, as the apostles experienced because in that first century the apostles were experiencing signs and wonders, miraculous things, to do three things. To vindicate the deity of Jesus, to affirm the authority of the apostles and their work, and to launch the new church. Miracles then and miracles today, yes, but not in the same measure, probably. For example, Jesus said in John five thirty six, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. See, Jesus was affirming miracles, or so you'll believe I'm Jesus, the incarnate Christ. That's why we see the predominance of them we do in the first century. 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, Paul states, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So it seems that Paul saw the signs and wonders that God worked through him as a special mark of his apostleship. So what does this mean to us today? Does it mean that we have a de-supernaturalized? I know it's not a word, but I made it up. Does it mean that we have a de-supernaturalized religion? Not at all. The Holy Spirit has been poured out and is still fully capable of doing signs and wonders. Rather, we now have a centralized focus on the Word of God that they did not have in the first century. The gospel... Because all the central acts of salvation are now in history. And it is the word or it is the Bible that connects us with these saving acts of God in the past. I hope that makes some sense to you. I know it's a little complicated. Let me tell you about two extremes we have today regarding miracles. Here's the first one. Some expect more miracles than they should. For example, some think that God never wills for his children to be sick and that believers should always be miraculously healed. But this goes against what we see in life. For example, in Romans 8:23 where it says that Christians groan with unredeemed bodies. We are born into this world with bodies that decay and ultimately will die. But some say, well, you know, God wants to heal every illness, set every wrong right. Not in this life. What's the other extreme of miracles, though? And this one, I think, hits many of us here much harder. Some of us expect too few miracles. It's especially true of North American, Western culture of America we slip into a naturalistic way of thinking that makes the devil and the Holy Spirit almost irrelevant. When we pray, we are almost afraid to ask for God to heal people directly, miraculously. As long as we are submitted to the freedom and the sovereignty of God's goodness to do as He pleases, we should regularly be praying for miracles. For God's intervention, we should also expect that some will have a gift that makes them maybe more fruitful at this than others. Checking the time there. I actually pushed my stopwatch, but I didn't push it hard enough, so it never started. (laughs) Uh, All more information than you need to know. I want to tell you a story, and I want to say up front that Some in in Joyce, my go group, have heard this before. And I may have told other individuals this story. But I had the joy and privilege of going on a mission trip to Brasilia, Brazil, the capital of Brazil in 2005. So I, with a translator, are going door to door in a community nearby one of our churches there. And uh, didn't know what to expect, but we go to a door, knock on the door, lady comes to the door, she's a young mother at home with her children. The translator explains that I'm a missionary from America and we're going through the neighborhood sharing people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well the Brazilian people really like Americans and believe it or not it actually gives you some credence when they say you're from America. It's not true in all countries but it is there in Brazil. So, I begin to share, ask her if I can share with her what the Bible says at the doorstep there about the gospel. I share the gospel with her. I ask her if she would like to give her life to Christ, repent of her sins, receive the gift of salvation. She says yes, and then I do what I normally do when I'm sharing the gospel with people. I briefly re-explain it and try to let them realize that, you know, this is a serious thing. You're talking about giving your life to the control of God. And she says she still needs to do it, so we pray, and she does. We leave that door, we go to the next door, and the same kind of thing happens. It's another mother at home with her young children. Exact same thing happens. We leave that house, and my interpreter says, this is amazing. Have you ever seen anything like this? And I said, frankly, no. Two doors in a row, two people give their lives to Christ. Still get some goosebumps telling this story. We go to a third house. Young man comes to the door. Same thing. Translator says, I'm a missionary for America, blah, blah, blah. And uh, can I ask, can I share with you what the Bible says, how you can know God personally? Go to heaven when you die. He says, yes, come in. He invites me and my translator into his home and we sit down. And we began to talk with him and to share the gospel. And we go through the gospel, and he says, you need to know something. He said, my mother is a Christian, but I'm not. And this morning, I ask God, if you're really real, send somebody today to tell me about you. Don't tell me God didn't do miracles today. He gave his life to Christ. We left. I almost had to take the translator home. He's, just, he's about ready to rapture on the spot, Connor. <laughs> God has to supernaturally change our nature. If you're saved, that's how you got saved. The Bible calls it being born again, John 3.3. 3. The devil hates it. He hates newborn Christians, therefore he'll use all kinds of weapons against the lost to keep them blind to the work, and he will use all those methods against Christians to keep us weak and fruitless. If you've given your life to Christ, Satan's already lost the battle with your soul. You're going to heaven when you die, but oh, does he work on believers because he wants to make us useless for God. Don't let that happen to you. Don't give in to that because God wants to use you mightily. Some of the devil's weapons are supernatural. So stay close to Jesus, and there'll be moments in your life when you need a sign and a wonder. And if you'll trust him, God will provide those. So, where are you today? Where are you today? Are you participating in God's plan for His people by being filled with His goodness and His knowledge so that you can be used to instruct others about Him? Are you fulfilling God's purpose of being involved in a ministry? Or are you merely interested in others ministering to you? As a royal priesthood, are you doing... Or rather, as a royal priesthood, how are you doing in representing Christ to others, in bringing them to know Him by your words and by your deeds. Are you expecting miracles in your life? Are you settling for the mundane due to a lack of faith to ask God to do the seemingly impossible? And last of all, the question I would ask you today, have you begun that wonderful adventure of knowing God personally through Jesus Christ? God longs to perform His greatest miracle by saving you through His grace. But you need to be willing to turn to Him in faith, to forgive you of your sins, and to make you the person He wants you to be. I do not know where you fit into these five questions I've asked at the end of this message. But I do know this. Sometimes there's some of you that aren't really sure if you've got this born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. Sometimes maybe you're not sure. You, you sort of understand the gospel, but you're not certain you've really ever let it be applied to your heart and life and given your heart to God. If that's the case, maybe for you today, I want to encourage you to do something. It's what Joyce and I over the years have called nailing down the stake. So today, if you've got a doubt whether you know him, today, nail the stake down and give him your life. Right now, you can do that. Bow with me as we pray. Father, I pray for each of us today that know you, that we would indeed let this message impact our life in the way we live, in the words we share, and even how we celebrate Christmas and how we let your glory of coming to this earth be manifest in others' lives as we witness to them and encourage them. And Father, I pray today for someone that may have some doubts, And if you do, maybe you'll just pray this prayer in your heart right now. Lord, I know you love me. I know you sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And today, I just ask you to forgive me of my sin. I trust you to become my Lord and my Savior. I give you my life. You do with it as you choose. I want to go to heaven when I die. And right now, I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.